0: We'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In a moment, we'll start reading. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one and look at the table of contents and find your way to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In a moment, we'll start reading with the first few verses. If I were to ask you a question, though, what is the the main message of the Bible? What is the Bible um, about? How would you answer that? And there's maybe different ways that you could answer that. Ultimately, the Bible's about God, about who he is, what he's like, who he is as our creator. It's an account of God at work in his world. It's It's a description of his glory and how he'll bring glory to himself. There's a lot of ways we could answer, but I want to suggest that one way to answer that is to say that the Bible contains God's promise to save, his promise to save us describes why we need to be saved. It describes his plan to do so and then the ways that he has accomplished that. And if you look through kind of the Old Testament and anticipating the New Testament and how God will save people, there's sort of some highlights that stick out. You maybe can think of them like like standing on a mountain and looking out at mountain ridges that go off into the distance. And so if we were standing at the beginning of the Bible and looking through the Old Testament, what would be the ridges, the the high points that would have to stand out to us as we understand God's promise to save? I mean, certainly part of it would be Genesis 1 and 2 and God's creation of people made in his image. But then Genesis 3, where they disobeyed, they rebelled. And, And that legacy is continued on to today. So the need to be saved we would see there. We could see other ridges. uh, Genesis 12 and 15 where God calls Abraham to himself and he promises him a land, a nation, and a blessing that will bless all people, predicting the people of Israel. We see those people eventually forming and going into slavery in Egypt, and then Exodus 12, being brought out of Egypt. Surely that would be a peak. Exodus 20, with the Ten Commandments, that would be a peak. Isaiah 53, with the suffering servant, the Messiah, that would be a peak. But I want to say that however you would populate that list, whatever passages you would come up with, 2 Samuel chapter 7 would have to be there. This this chapter would have to be there. This is one of the key Old Testament passages that, that tells us about Jesus. That tells us that he would come from the line of David. If you think of the predictions of Jesus' as coming like, a, like an address, narrowing it down to something that could only be fulfilled by him, this gets us to the street that is Jesus from the line of David. It predicts his rule, his kingdom, what he would do in that sense. It's a crucial link in God's promise to save. So with that in mind, let's begin reading 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. I'll pick back up in a moment, but just to pause here, we really see David's idea. He's got this idea here, and it doesn't spell it out, but we can imply that his plan is to build God a house. He's there in his own comfortable home. It's this home that's described in chapter 5, where he says that the king of Tyre sent cedars and workmen to build a home out of cedar and stone for for david we see it described there david's at a time of rest from these wars which means chronologically this probably happens after chapter eight which describes his wars he's sitting in this home in peace nathan's with him and looks out and whether he can see it or he just remembers it this is the ark of god in a tent The ark was this wooden box about four feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet, covered in gold, and inside it had uh, some important elements of Israel's past. It had the Ten Commandments. It had a a jar that had manna in it from the wilderness. It had Aaron's rod that had budded. But it it was more than that. It was a symbolic representation of God's presence. And so often God reminded them of that. The need not to take it, this ark, as like a lucky charm. There was one time, maybe you recall reading early in First Samuel, if you've been in our reading plan in First Samuel, there was a time when the Israelites were going out to war, and so they brought this ark with them, thinking, surely if this box is here, we're going to win. And God allowed them to be soundly defeated. It's like, I'm not a good luck charm. Don't, don't treat me like that. There's also the scene right before this chapter, in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, where they're transporting the ark, and it begins to fall, and one man, Uzzah, reaches out his hand to hold it, and he's struck dead, because they were not to touch it. It was a way to, it was just a box, but it was a reminder of God's holiness and his presence. And so David's thinking about that, surely, and he says it's in a, it's in a tent. It was in the tabernacle which God instructed the people to build for when they were wandering through the desert. And it was, as a portable structure, it was, it was beautiful still. It was covered in colorful fabrics and dyed ram's skin. And it was a solid structure that would be used for worship and it would hold the ark, but it was still somewhat of a tent. And at this point, it would have been 300 years old. And so David... Perhaps appropriately is thinking, this seems to be a mismatch. I'm in a home, and this ark that represents God is is in a tent. He apparently is intending to build something more permanent. And Nathan affirms, go, do what's on your mind. Let's see what the Lord says, though. Pick back up in verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go, and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. David says, I'm going to build a house for God. And God says, No, no, I'm to, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. He, he spins this around and actually uses a lot of the same language. That very night, he wastes no time and he gives this vision to Nathan to correct this idea. The emphasis there really is on David, are, are you the one who will build this? The answer is not so much no as not yet and not you, David. There'll be, there'll be another that will come. But, but what's great is the way the Lord turns this to David and says, David, you were going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. You were going to build me, you thought to build me a permanent structure? No, I'm going to build you a permanent dynasty that will come from your family line. And I love the reasoning for why he says, David, don't build me a temple yet. What he says in verses, starting in verse 6. Put your eyes there again in verse 6. He says, I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt even to this day, but have been moving about in a tent even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word basically to build me this? No, he says, David, my people have been in tents. They've been wandering, kind of a nomadic people. And so I will be with them where they are. They're, they're in the desert in a tent. I will be in a desert with, in a tent with them. Will there be a, a permanent home built one day? Yes. But David, not now. I will, I will be with my people. They're wandering. I will be wandering with them. I will share in their condition, in the sense, is what he's saying. It's amazing to me. The holy God says I will just be with them where they are give you a little analogy of this. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he tells this story of the former Speaker of the House from many years ago. His name was Sam Rayburn. And he was Speaker of the House of Representatives, means that he's kind of high up there in Washington power. He was kind of a larger than life figure from Texas, and he served for many years in that role. And he learned one night that one of the reporters that covers him uh, suddenly lost his daughter in an accident. And he showed up at this reporter's house early that next morning and he knocked on the door and the reporter opened it was stunned to see him there and Sam Rayburn said I I heard about what happened and I just wanted to see if there's anything I can do to help so this reporter has the speaker of the house in front of him and he's like I I I don't I don't know what you can do to help and Rayburn said, well, have you had coffee yet? I could, just, I could come in and make you coffee at least. And so he did. He comes inside the house. It's a little apartment, actually, and he makes some coffee, and he gives it to him and is talking to him. And after a while, the reporter realizes kind of what day it is, and he said, don't, don't you usually have a meeting at this time? And he said, I did, but I, I called the White House, and I told the president I couldn't meet with him right now. My, my friend needs me. He had blown off this meeting with the president to be with this reporter who was hurting. Why do those type of stories touch us? Like, what, what is it that's like, ah, when we hear that? It's because there's somebody who would appear to be high up in a position of power that, from perspective, stoops down to, to be with somebody who's hurting, that would appear to be lower than them. And that is what God is doing. He, he is with his people in the desert. He says, I don't I don't need this building. I'm I'm with them. Dale Ralph Davis again says, if you pay attention to this passage, you shouldn't be surprised when you get Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, now jumping to the New Testament and talking about Jesus, notice what it says about him. Have this attitude in yourselves, it's instruction for us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to this privilege of deity. While holding on to his deity, maintaining his deity, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Being made into the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus did in humbling himself. But in a way, it's anticipated by what God did in dwelling with his people in the wilderness. David thinks he needs to do something for God. I need to build him this thing. And the Lord says, no, David, this is all I've done for you. And David, I'm going to do yet more. It's a a picture of grace as he unloads on David, a reminder of all that he's done. With a repeated emphasis on the word I. Look at verse 8 again. He says, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep to be ruled over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. He says, David, this is what I've done. You were you were in the sheep, you were with the sheep in the field, and David, I took you from that, and I made you a ruler, and I've set you where you are, and David, there's yet more to come. He unfolds blessing upon blessing for what he would do, and he promises him some things here that maybe we could think of with four words. He promises him a name, a place, rest, and a house. He says, David, I'm going to make your name great, which is an echo, really, of what God had told Abraham, where he would make of him a a name and a nation. He says, I'm going to make your name great. This place where I have set you as king, you will be established there, and my people will. I'm going to give you rest, David, from your enemies. And this is kind of the new part. Those other parts were sort of echoes from Abraham. But now the new part, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to build for you a house. And it's not this physical structure. It is a dynasty. It is a kingdom that will last not just to your descendant, to the next one after you, but but forever. Who can fulfill these promises? As we look at these specific promises, who, who fulfills them? Some of them, surely it's Solomon, David's son, which... David would not have been a foregone conclusion that his son would rule after him. Remember, Saul's son didn't rule after him. But Solomon, David's son, would rule. And he fulfills some of this, but some of it is far beyond uh, Solomon. It's a little bit like, to use the mountain peak analogy again, but from a, a different angle. Um, how many of you have had this experience maybe recently hunting where you're, you're climbing a mountain? You think, oh, I'm almost there. There's the peak of it. I'm almost there. And you get up to the top of it. And you're wiped out. And what do you see? More mountain. <laughs> and you're like, it's a, it's a false peak with more to come. And, and that's a bit like this fulfillment of this promise. There's an immediate fulfillment in Solomon and his descendants after him. But there's a fulfillment that goes far beyond that could only be fulfilled in Christ Solomon would build a house for the Lord. It was during Solomon's time that they built the temple. So that is fulfilled, as he said. Solomon and his descendants would commit iniquity. They would sin, and God would correct them, it says, with the rods of men, meaning other nations that would attack them, that the Lord would use to redirect and get their attention. That would happen. But the Lord's loving kindness would not depart from them. God, God would not pull this from them like he did from Saul and give it to another another. His promise would remain there. But there's a part of this that goes far beyond Solomon. Specifically, several times here he says, I'm going to establish a throne that will be forever. And notice he says it at least three times to establish, like, no, this is, this is for sure. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. How how can this be if Solomon would end up in the ground and his descendants would as well? It's because it goes beyond Solomon to the Messiah. His throne that would last forever. His kingdom that would last forever. This is why Israel knew to anticipate A son of David that would come. That's where it narrows down this address to Jesus. So so keep that in mind when you read through the New Testament and you see over and over again things like this. We open up the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, and what do we find? The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Who? The son of David. Why does it call him that? Because of 2 Samuel 7. This promise that this descendant would come who would rule forever. In describing Jesus' birth, the wise men come and they ask the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Why do they ask that about this baby? Because they know one would come who would be king of the Jews, whose throne would last forever, whose kingdom would last forever. They knew these promises. Blind men in Matthew chapter 9, calling out to Jesus to have mercy as he travels past. What do they call him? They say, have mercy on us, son of David. Why do they call him son of David? Because they knew. They knew that this is that address. This is the label for him. This is what he is fulfilling. This is what he's fulfilling. Matthew 21, 9. The triumphal entry as Jesus, before his death, comes into the city of Jerusalem and is is heralded by the people. What do they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They see this as a fulfillment. 2 Samuel 7 as he's coming in. In Acts, as Paul is speaking to his fellow Jewish people, and he's in the synagogue, and he's talking to them about how God is fulfilling this promise, what does he say? He recounts this Old Testament history. After he, that is God, had removed him, this is Acts 13, 22. After he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up David to be their king. This is what we've read about in these couple months. Concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse. I'm a man after, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. This is what we've read about. Descendant, uh, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. It says God had promised it, and now we're seeing it fulfilled. And Paul's looking back at the life and death of Jesus the Messiah and saying, it fulfills this. This promise to David has been fulfilled why we jump ahead to the book of Revelation John's vision there in Revelation and as they're wondering about these scrolls that represent judgment that is coming during this time of tribulation say who will open the scroll the line that is from the tribe of Judah that's the part of the address is to come from the the tribe of Judah the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven scrolls why does it call him the root of David? Because of 2 Samuel 7 and this promise. Jesus himself at the end of the book of Revelation describing all that has been done. And he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He says, I fulfill all of this that was promised to David. That's why I say this is one of those peaks that we have to remember because it tells us about Jesus to come and that he would come and reign. It's so partially fulfilled in his first coming; it will be fully fulfilled in his second. That's so why we say the Bible is an account of God's promise to save. And this is narrowing it in. How will he save? One more piece of it we learn is that it's through somebody from David, who will be the king. Well, how does David respond? David had this idea to build for God a house, and instead, God tells him all that he's already done, and then so much more that he will do. These promises to come. What what is David's response? Let's read. Picking up in verse 18 Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our eyes. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you, and awesome things for your land, before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel, as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant in his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken. That your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. What does David say? You can maybe summarize it this way. May you do as you have spoken. But notice his initial response. God, God tells him all that he's done, all that he will do. And David's response is, that's right. You know, I'm pretty great. No, it's not that. It's, who am I? He, he sits before the Lord and he says, who am I? And, 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 and what is my house? So who, who are we that you would promise this, Lord? It's humility. It's recognition that this is all of grace, unearned, undeserved by David or his descendants, and yet God is pouring out grace upon grace. Shouldn't that be our response as well when we hear all that God has done for us? That's, that's what we see over and over again in the Bible is, is people who are undeserving and God showers them with grace. And often he has to remind them of that so that there's not pride that wells up. Think about David that we just saw here, but also think about the people of Israel before that. In Deuteronomy, as God has brought them out of Egypt and he's warning them against kind of a danger of a spiritual pride that would come up. And What does he tell them for why the Lord had called them out that way. He says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He says, Why did God call you out? Why did he make you his own? Is it because there were so many of you? No. Why did he love you? Just because he loved you. With his own free and sovereign will, he set his love on you. He even has to tell them a little bit later, it's not even because of their own righteousness. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. Know then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. How would you like to hear that? says so it's not... It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your numbers. In fact, you are a stubborn people because he loves you. And he promised you. He's fulfilling his promise here. There's an accusation that is sometimes made against Christians in particular, but it could be against others who claim to kind of have the market on truth. As others will look at, skeptics will look at Christians and say, that's going to make you proud. If you claim that your God is the only God and Jesus is the only way to Him, that's going to make you proud. If we understand this, how could that be? If we understand that we are in Christ only because of His work, because He chose to save us, not because of our own merit, not because of our own righteousness, but it's all of grace. There should be no place for, for pride in that. In fact, it should cultivate greater and greater humility. David says, who am I? And he says, Lord, may you do what you've promised. I'm going to trust you to do what you've promised. How can we apply this? We need to see first just where it fits in scripture, not not just as an application to us, but that it's, it's predicting and anticipating the Messiah. It's this key link from really, Abraham to David to then the Messiah to come. So it's just an understanding Scripture, it's important. But I think there's some key takeaways for us. If this is what God has promised, and this is what God has done, it's ours to believe, to believe specifically in Jesus, who is the Son of David, that he said, "I, I will hold your kingdom forever." And It's anticipating one to come and then Jesus comes and it's the son of David, this descendant, who fulfills that and died. Died, not, not just as the king who would rule, but died for his people and then rose and then will come again to rule. That if the Old Testament is a record of God's promises made and the New Testament we see God's promises kept and more to come that he will surely keep, See, if God's promise is to save, then we recognize that we need to be saved, that we recognize that we have sinned, we have rebelled against a holy God, and this is his plan to save, is Jesus, and it's ours to believe. So he would tell people at his time, this is John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. But if we believe that He is who He says He is, we will not die in our sins. We will die, but we will be with Him. Our sins are covered by Him. So what's our response? Our response is to believe and then to rest in His grace. Like David, we may feel the need to do. I've got to do something for you, God. I've got to This maybe wasn't David's motive, but it could easily be, all right, I've got to to earn something. I've got to give more. I've got to sacrifice more. I've got to do this. I've got to get on your good side, God. Maybe then, maybe then you'll let me in. And God says, it's grace. I give it to you by grace. I've sent my son. You trust in him. You believe. He on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. The work is done. And we get We get to be forgiven. We get to be adopted into his family. We get a new heart. Get the Holy Spirit to live with us, change us. And we get to be with him forever. And a response sometimes when somebody hears a message of grace like that is, that seems too easy. I need to do more, right? It's too easy. Can't you imagine David saying that? God, I've got this idea. And God says, I'm gonna give. I've already given to you, and I'm gonna give you more and more and more. It's grace. That's a picture of what we receive as well. We come as needy people and he gives. Now out of gratitude, we give, we serve, we sacrifice, but it's only because he has given first and he's given most. Let's pray.